The Southern African Development Community, or SADC, as it is re uh, generally referred to, was initially introduced as an economic, a regional economic unit and community for regional economic integration. There are several of these subunits, if I can call them that, on the African continent. We ECOWAS, uh, Economic com Community for West Africa. There's the East African Community on the eastern side of Africa. And there are others. And in Southern Africa, uh, uh, there is SADC consisting of Angola, Botswana, the D uh, DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, Lesotho, Madagascar, Malawi, Mauritius, Mozambique, Namibia, South Africa, Swaziland, Tanzania, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. So we have Lusophones, Francophones, and Anglophones in there. And it was formally established in 1992 as a successor to what was known as the Southern African Development Coordination Conference. Now, 1992 was before the first democratic elections in South Africa, but it was during the time of transition already. It was after the end of the Cold War and the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, and, and, and uh, it was like a time of, of, of movement in, in all kinds of directions. And the community was created in 1992. The treaty explicitly provided for the establishment of a tribunal through a protocol, which would then become an integral part of the treaty itself. This, was, this procedure was concluded in, in 2000, so the tribunal was actually established in 2000, but the judges were only appointed in 2005, and the first cases were uh, uh, initiated, the first proceedings around 2006-2007. And the Campbell case, until now only nine decisions have been handed down, most of them have been labour disputes against the organisation itself. People. Um, who have been fired and, and, and officials and so on, and, and at least they have a tribunal to go to. Not all, not all organizations, uh, international organizations can make that claim. And I think part of the, uh, the complexity of how this whole thing is playing out, the Campbell case, which mainly concerns human rights uh, abuses, uh, is that it was one of the very, it was actually the very first substantive claim uh, case against a state uh, before the tribunal. So it's at a period when the jurisdiction of the tribunal was not really established and it, it wasn't a, a well-established, stabilized tribunal, uh, the jurisdiction of which and the authority of which had been widely um, uh, uh, acquiesced in at the time, which and then giving a, a, a decision on something as, as, as controversial as the land grab uh, and, and loaded and politically loaded as the land-grabbing practices of, of uh, Zimbabwe um, was, of course, a complicating factor. Now, the, this, if you look at the, the SADC Treaty, I have, a, I have one copy here, if, which if people want to have a look at, at some of the clauses, but it is aimed at economic integration. And, of course, the European Union is, is the great model to which they all aspire, but most of these communities are very, very far removed from that. The East African community seems to be functioning quite well compared to some of the other African communities in terms also of the authority of its courts and the kinds of decisions and the number of decisions and judgments coming out of their courts. And, and they are, in the Francophone region, uh, there, there are similar trends, but not, there's nothing comparable in, in, in Africa that can be compared nearly to, to the sophistication and the complexity and the dens density of regulation that one has in the European Union. 
But if one, now, if one looks at the preamble, it, it starts, it talks about economic integration and development through guaranteeing democracy, human rights and the rule of law. Open terms not defined or specified in any concrete way in the treaty itself, which was part of the, the challenge for, for the tribunal. Article 4, Article 4, 5 and 6 deals with goals, principles, objectives. It's not entirely clear to me what the difference, if any, between these, these concepts are. They seem to be, to me, like very much used like synonyms. But Article 4, dealing with principles, explicitly states that it's, uh, the member states of SADC have to act in accordance with human rights, democracy and the rule of law. Article 5 determines, emphasizes regional integration, economic growth and also, also the furtherance of democracy. And Article 6 was of core importance in this decision because it is the only human right in the SADC treaty that is actually defined explicitly in the treaty itself. And it concerns the principle of non-discrimination and it, determines, it determines that SADC and its member states shall not discriminate against any person on grounds of gender, religion, political views, race, ethnic origin, culture, ill health, disability, or such other ground as may be determined by the summit. The summit is the head of states uh, of the SADC, uh, of, of, the, of the community. Now, as mentioned, the tribunal itself was established in 2000 through a protocol as foreseen in Article 22 of the SADC tribunal. Now, this is important because this, the, SADC, the treaty itself contains certain procedures. For, for the establishment of the tribunal, there was a specific procedure foreseen in Article 22 that determines that this, this protocol through which the, the, the tribunal will uh, be created has to be adopted by the summit through a two-thirds majority. This procedure corresponds to the Article 39, which also describes how any amendment to the treaty itself needs to be done. Also through um, uh, adoption uh, by the members, uh, uh, by the summit, and a two-third decision, a two-thirds majority is sufficient to, uh, to see through any amendment of the treaty itself, which will then subsequently be binding on all the members. So there's a specific procedure for that, and this was also the procedure uh, followed by, uh, uh, by the summit when adopting the protocol, and in fact, all members, uh, it was a unanimous decision to adopt the protocol, and it was signed by all heads of state, Zimbabwe's signature was there, uh, was was on the document as well. So there was a, a complete acquiescence in the tribunal's creation at the time. That was in 2000. And keep in mind that the, the real serious land grabbing started after this period. This is just before, it was like when the scale was just tipping. Things were already problematic at the time. Um, but afterwards, the, the campaigns of uh, Zimbabwe against uh, civilian population in many ways intensified. There's another procedure in the tribunal which explicitly provides for the adoption of additional protocols on substantive issues such as environment, firearms, crime control. And a whole range of these protocols have already been like, created, but they are of, uh, those, for those protocols to be effective in a specific country, ratification is, 
is required. That's an opt-in thing. In other words, it's like the protocols we know, we're familiar with also at the European, added to the European Convention on Human Rights. It's, they only apply to those who've actually opted into them through ratification. And this, this, I'm mentioning this technical difference because this is part of when, of Zimbabwe's argument until this day, they claim suddenly after having signed and signed the actual do, uh, protocol that created the SADC tribunal, then 10 years later they decided that the tribunal wasn't created legally. And they are referring to this other procedure um, in the, I think it's Article 26 that provides for, no, Article 16 provides for the establishment of the treaty through the protocol and Article 22 is this other article that deals with all the other protocols. And so they're deliberately distorting and, and mixing all this up to claim that this, the tribunal was, was never validly created and therefore shouldn't be, uh, can take any binding decisions. Now, jurisdiction, and this is also a thing that I think I'm struggling also with this, also when it comes to rule of law, how we as lawyers define the concept of the rule of law, um, and, and legal certainty. Jurisdiction is, 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 Article 14 states that the tribunal has jurisdiction in disputes pertaining to the interpretation and application of the treaty as well as the protocols. Article 15 further determines jurisdiction applies also to dispute between states and individuals. So there is an individual, uh, the rights of individuals to approach the tribunal in, in relation to the application and interpretation of the treaty. Now, the treaty itself, of course, protects arti uh, contains Article 6, the clear non-discrimination clause, but the treaty also contains these references to human rights democracy and the rule of law in general, rather open terms. And, and then the question becomes, okay, but are, are, they, are these concepts as they are uh, 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 contained in the treaty actually uh, justiciable? Or are they too open or too vague? How much can we interpret into them without undermining uh, legal certainty to begin with? And simply also the will of the parties because they're there is a text to which states agree to and if a court becomes too activist at some point um, states may simply withdraw from this whole procedure there's a very fine balance as to how far a regional tribunal which was actually intended to be an economic tribunal can grow organically and still have legitimacy how far can it move beyond what it was initially created for and still and still have legitimacy with its members. Important also the sources of law. Article 21b of the protocol states the sources of law including to Ali applicable treaties, general principles and rules of public international law. It, it, it's, it seems to, to resemble Article 31 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties that also refers to all applicable rules of international law, rules applicable between the parties that needs to be considered when, when a particular treaty is being interpreted. So far, so good. I'm coming back to these things when, I, when, I, when, when, when we get to the case itself, but these are, these are the principles on which the whole debate currently is turning. Now, and something actually quite cool and which took a turn which I don't think anybody actually you know, thought through at the time. Enforcement and execution, Article 32. 
determines the rules of procedure for the registration and enforcement of foreign judgments enforcing the territory of the respective member states shall govern. Um, so once there's a decision of, of the tribunal, it, sh it should be executed. Well, it's, to begin with, it's binding on the parties to the dispute in this particular case. It's not formally binding on any other party. However, then there's this enigmatic um, clause in Article 32 that these decisions shall be given effect in the, uh, in the states concerned. Now, does that mean the states party to the case? Or does it mean all states that are somehow, in some way or another, concerned? And when giving effect to these decisions, the states concerned shall apply their domestic law that deals with the, uh, their, their, old, uh, their laws and civil procedure that facilitates the enforcement of foreign judgments. Now, this is a classic private international law instrument that is usually used to enforce divorce orders, uh, uh, insolvency orders, debt orders, and, and the like. Uh, it's it's, it's a, an instrument common under private international law, but the, the interesting upshot was it was actually used in the Campbell case to enforce a human rights violation against the state. And it's also something, it so happens that most states, in any case, has, have legislation that, that facilitates the enforcement of foreign judgments. Functioning states generally have such a thing because this is something that is quite common in commercial transactions. So when this clause was introduced into the SADC treaty, many states already had this, this type of laws in place, many of the member states. They didn't need to go and adopt something specially just for this. Which also, in the end, when it came to the way in which the Campbell case was enforced in South Africa, of course, placed, play, played a role because the mechanisms for enforcement was already in place. Now, okay, so this is, this is the background and the tools of the, of, of the treaty itself that were relevant in this dispute and which have a certain spillover effect on the rule of law. Now, the Constitution of Zimbabwe um, has been amended significantly uh, over the last uh, 10 to 20 years and very controversial uh, uh, element of the current constitution concerns uh, the, what we refer to as the land grabbing. And uh, Act Number 17, which is a particular act adopted to amend the constitution, designated certain land and this is explicitly in the constitution itself, that certain land was designated for expropriation by the state. No reference to land of white landowners. The, the, the race didn't in, was, it wasn't drafted in a way that explicitly referred to race. But the impact was indirect. It was a form of indirect discrimination in the, in the sense that ex, almost exclusively land white owners were affected. Compensation was excluded and also due process. So the constitution just nicely excluded anything that happened in relation to this land from any procedure or access to courts and so forth. Um, so, although the SADC tribunal requires the, uh, domestic exhaustion of domestic remedies, in this case, it was, there was no point because there, there was none. There, there, it, there, was no, there was no possibility to, 
to exhaust domestic remedies. Now, what happened here, Mr. Campbell was uh, a white land owner. He passed away about a month ago. He had lived in Zimbabwe all his life, uh, was uh, part of the colonial history, very much, of, of southern Rhodesia. If I remember correctly, he actually fought in the, in the civil war on the, on the side of the government of the, of, of the then southern Rhodesia, the minority government at the time, was a big land owner, but employed also 50 people. He had 50 mainly black workers working for him remained on the land and, um, like many other landowners, were ext extremely uh, instrumental in the food production in the country uh, as, as also a, re a result of the extent of the land that they owned. And he was heavily affected by this. He lost everything. They were also physically attacked and uh, uh, um, uh, on their farms and removed. The attack left him deaf. And when he attended the Salic hearings, the la during the last year or two, he was present in the courtroom in Ventuk in Namibia, but he couldn't hear anything. He's, uh, he, so he was there, but he didn't really follow everything directly what, that happened around him. And then, um, they, to my understanding, they lived, now in, they lived in South Africa just before his death, and he has, he's recently passed away. Now, this uh, he, he tried to uh, enforce to follow the judicial uh, avenues in Zimbabwe, it wasn't possible. And then he made a case, he went to the SADC tribunal. He, re he relied on Article 6, the non-discrimination clause. It's not for no reason that he did not rely on the right to property. To begin with, it isn't guaranteed in the SADC treaty itself. Um, his position, and he had very good counsel, and this is also one of the, like, the ironies in this whole thing. He was, the law firm that represented him in, in, in uh, Pretoria, uh, in the Cape, was quite conservative. He had very conservative Afrikaner lawyers initially taking his case. But the senior counsel, Jeremy Gauntlet, is one of South Africa's most respected senior counsels, who actually took the case to the court. So you see the, 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 the the border shifting here as well. It was like different people from very different ideological backgrounds came together because the fact is there simply was no due process and his rights was trampled on and he had lost everything and, and, and the way in which this happened was highly problematic. Now, had he relied on the right to property, of course, the, the, the argument of the council, and which was also accepted by the tribunal in the end, was yes, we are dealing here with open terms such as rule of law, democracy, and human rights. They are not in themselves defined in the treaty, with the exception of the non-discrimination clause. But in terms of Article 31 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, and also Article 21 of the, uh, the SADC Treaty, all applicable treaties all the other human rights treaties to which Zimbabwe, in this case, the relevant state party, is a party, should be relied on to interpret what we mean with human rights and rule of law. And, well, I mean, you won't find democracy in any of those treaties, but the court, with rule of law, which is a highly complex and controversial concept in itself, uh, to begin with, the court was 
counsel in the court found with, without much difficulty that access to uh, courts and a fair hearing are core, core elements of the rule of law. And that this was guaranteed in various international uh, uh, instruments to which Zimbabwe itself was a, um, was a party. This includes Article 7 of the African Charter on Human Rights and the African Commission itself has on several occasions criticized the ouster clauses where uh, military governments, for example, in Nigeria, uh, uh, ousted certain t types of complaints from the judicial process. This was heavily criticized by the, uh, by the African Commission. The, 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 European Co uh, Court of Justice in the uh, European Court of Human Rights in the Golder case also made reference to the relevance of access to court and fair trial as elements of the rule of law. There was a very influential advisory of the opinion of the Inter-American Court of human rights on, uh, on states of emergency and the impact on, on due process, where this was also confirmed. And so <clears throat> the point of the court was, yes, rule of law is an open term, but it is justiciable by looking at those treaties, human rights treaties, to which Zimbabwe is a party. This includes all the ICCPR, but also the African, African Charter, there is jurisprudence of the African Commission uh, that's, that supports the view that access to court and a fair trial are core elements of the rule of law. And this position is also supported by jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American Court of Rights. And, and this is still disputed by Zimbabwe as to whether these clauses were meant to be justiciable or are they, they, they're the goals and the principles of the Sadiq community. But were they really meant to be uh, granting rights to individuals? And I think this is about, I agreed with the decision, but I don't think the question from a treaty law perspective is entirely ridiculous. I do think that this is, one could one could debate the issue whether it was really the intention of the parties to confer justiciable rights on individuals in the SADC community by including Article 4 and, 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 and including the, the concepts of human rights, rule of law and democracy in Article 4. Because what this basically means is in order to determine the content of these clauses, one has to look at the treaties that the state in question has ratified. So the court then gives extension, uses the ICCPR and, a very, and a, the African Charter and all kinds of other instruments to give substance to the SADC treaty in a particular case. And of course, it may, the result may be entirely different if there's another state party involved which hasn't ratified uh, the treaty in question, then things would be different. For example, if it concerns a state such as Botswana that has not ratified, uh, uh, that applies the death penalty and hasn't ratified the second optional protocol to the ICCPR, then of course the, um, the SADC tribunal could not rely on an international law instrument. It, it could not, I, I would find it problematic if it tried to decide a case on the death penalty in such a, in such a situation. Um, what is especially controversial is how far can the court go with these type of interpretations. It's one thing to say we're using the ICCPR 
and so on as, 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 an, as a tool for interpreting the Sadiq Treaty. It's systemic integration, it's Article 31 of the Vienna Convention, all is fine. But if the Sadiq Tribunal were to decide that, and by the way, Zimbabwe did not only violate the Sadiq Treaty, it also violated the African Charter and the ICCPR and like seven other treaties. Um, I, I, I don't think that that authority was, that the, the court has the authority to do that. They are, the ECOWAS Treaty explicitly in its, in its treaty states that the ECOWAS Court can interpret also the African Charter and apply the African Charter. There are other sub-regional courts in Africa which in their founding treaties uh, uh, empower the tribunal not only to look at that regional instrument, to interpret and apply that instrument, but also other regional and international instruments. The Inter-American uh, uh, Court has similar powers when it comes to advisory opinions. This in itself is not new, but I do think that one should look carefully to what the states agreed to. Ultimately, there was a text which they ratified, and if one tries to read too much into this for the, for the simple reason that there's nowhere else to go, nothing in Zimbabwe is functioning, so these people are now taking all their troubles to the Sadek Tribunal. And the tribunal wasn't meant for that purpose. There's only so far that such a court can go without undermining the legitimacy of its own text. And also scare off virtually every state in the region. I, I, that is also a factor that one somehow needs to keep in mind. But in any case, so the, the court had no difficulty in finding core elements of the rule of law. It's still, democracy and so on wasn't so much at stake here. That wasn't really what was argued. But I was wondering, well, that would be a tough one. You know, how, how would you define that? But that wasn't, that wasn't the issue. Then the second issue was discrimination. And there I think it was... I mean, this, it was clear-cut, the SADC Treaty itself has a clear definition. And if one also then interprets that definition in the light of the ICCPR, the African Charter, and the like, I think that the, the court may, and, and other treaties, uh, the third, the, the UN treaties on racial discrimination and so on, to which Zimbabwe is a party, then I actually think that the court came to a very accurate conclusion. And stressed that, and now this is culturally and historically and in the colonial context quite, quite something, that this colonial landowner took his case to a tribunal of 14 judges, all black Africans, and 13 of the 14 agreed that he was, all, all agreed that he was denied due process, and 13 to 1 agreed that he was discriminated on the basis of race, and that this was in, indirect discrimination which I actually think of in itself was quite exceptional in Southern Africa. This, this is something that also shows that we have made some, some uh, progress on, on these politically very, very loaded, uh, loaded issues and, and that, the, that, that the issue is such that the facts in this instance were, were followed, were applied correctly. And, it, and the court stressed also that expropriation as such is not necessarily, uh, the, if they, that, that wasn't the problem. Expropriation followed by compensation could of course be in the public interest. And that is not what is at issue here, but it is the way in which this was done. And there was one judge dissenting, Zimbabwe didn't have a judge on the court, but there was one judge dissenting from another jurisdiction who, who indicated 
that he that he felt that it was the land that was at issue, and not and not the um, not the persons that that wasn't the issue, but it was thirteen to one. Okay, but now of course, rule of law. Also, if there is no enforcement, I don't see how there can be uh, any credible rule of law. And it's clear that at this point in time, Zimbabwe is most certainly not interested in, in following um, the court. So, Mr. Campbell, first of all, went to the High Court of Zimbabwe and tried to register this decision in accordance with the law of civil procedure for the enforcement of foreign judgments, as is required by the SADC Treaty itself. Um, I actually found the Gramara decision of the High Court quite interesting. It simply wasn't a whitewash. He lost. He couldn't get it registered. But the way that the High Court applied the international law was impeccable. Um, Zimbabwe's argument was SADC treaty was never implemented in Zimbabwe, dual estate, you know, we, sim we simply cannot apply this. There's not much we can do. So the High Court decided, yes, but under international law, uh, you incur responsibility, you're on the obligation to give effect to this treaty. Uh, we do actually have laws in place for the enforcement of foreign judgments, including those from international tribunal, tribunals designated. Now, the SADC tribunal wasn't a designated tribunal under the law. However, the judge continued and said, well, you know, but also the common law recognizes the enforcement of foreign judgments, and there's a thing of com comity and legitimate expectation. And, and taken from that perspective, uh, Mr. Campbell actually has a really legitimate expectation in having his claim uh, uh, registered. Um, and the court rejected, the Zimbabwe High Court rejected this distorted argument of the uh, 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 Mugabe government that the tribunal was invalidly created. It, it, it made the correct distinction between Article 16 and 39 on the one hand of the treaty and Article 22, and it, it, that it just it didn't give the time of day. So I've, I felt that that part of the decision was quite, quite, there was not much from an international perspective that you could say against that. But then he came to the, dual, the very dualist part, and he said, yes, however, if we give effect to this legitimate expectation of Mr. Campbell, then we undermine the very explicit wishes of the Zimbabwean constitution. The most fundamental values of, the Zimbabwe, of Zimbabwe are contained in its constitution. Now, he could, and I found the fine should have said, well, we have to amend the constitution in order to facilitate this, which even if it didn't happen at that point in time, it would have been... I think judicially the right way to go, and a future and, and a future government would remain bound by this, and, and it would be a, a first step in the right direction. But there, he, he withdrew around the, fun, uh, the, the, the dualist veil and said we have to give effect to our constitution and the clear wishes expressed in our constitution. Now, positivistically speaking, the man has a point. He's also not the first to rely on fundamental values as a reason not to enforce higher decisions. I was a, a supporter of the Cardi decision, you know, but this is, this is, the, this is the other side of that. Huh? There's not only one way of... of, of there's, there's not only one fundamental value in, behind which we, we can withdraw. So the upshot was nothing happened and uh, the, the case wasn't registered. And then... Mr. Campbell took his case to South Africa, uh, where we have a very 
also strong Zimbabwean lobby. I mean, the middle class has been living there for, for quite some time. And relying on Article 32 and saying, well, art article, the article that says the states concerned should register this decision. He was saying, his argument was, listen, this doesn't necessarily, it's drafted in a way that could also implicate other member states. And keep in mind, the reason why we want to register this decision in Zimbabwe is because the country has assets here. So once the decision is registered, we can attach the assets for execution. Zimbabwe didn't turn up at the court hearings as a result of which it sailed through. And then Sadek woke up one morning and this decision was registered in the Pretoria High Court, the North Gauteng High Court, as it is now called. Outrage broke out all throughout Sadek. The next, a few, uh, a few months later, a few weeks later, all Sadek uh, uh, activity, the court was suspended for six months. All future, the court wasn't allowed to uh, accept any more cases for the next six months. And during this six-month period, the whole future of Sadek was to be reconsidered. We're getting back to that. Meanwhile, the decision remains um, uh, registered in South Africa. And I must say on that level, there was no direct interference by the South African government. They didn't try to get that unregistered. And uh, uh, property was attached. They, uh, the, the several uh, houses and things belong, belonging to Zimbabwe were, uh, were attached. And Zimbabwe, of course, invoked immunity. And in November of last year, there was a decision in the Johannesburg High Court that some of the property was indeed uh, uh, used for commercial prop, uh, purposes, rented to ordinary people living there, and, and that that could be attached. Other property was actually left more or less destitute. It wasn't really being used for anything at all. But then, and the court's position was then, then you can also not induce a commercial purpose from that. So it didn't attach, it allowed attachment to some, but not to everything. Um, now, this is controversial. There, there are arguments that South Af the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act allows for broader attachment, but uh, <clears throat> at least one of the houses, I mean, and not that this is, I don't think this is even going to cover Mr. Campbell's uh, legal costs. But, but at least it's, it's an indication of if this were to happen, like in Botswana, Namibia, and if, if, if some of the, these type of enforcement attempts to also took place throughout the community, it is at least some kind of pressure on, on the regime, which at this point in time, while there's no political pressure, is, is more or less all that there is. Okay, now the future of the SADC tribunal. So this. This looked very bleak. I mean, this was like in, in, in August, September last year, it was all looking very bleak. And one had the sense that, well, okay, now there's this court showed some teeth and it was actually an historic decision. And the first thing that the African governments do is they get together, gang up and suspend the tribunal. You know, this doesn't really uh, spell anything good for the future of the rule of law. Uh, now, if we define that as access to a court, if this was now replaced to the regional level, on that level, it worked. But then you also see how limited the impact of that success is. If to, first of all, the, the main culprit in this case, Zimbabwe, has no intention at this point in time of enforcing the decision. Of course, it remains a binding decision, binding on a future government. 
So in the post-Mugabe era, it is a, it is a, it's, it's a hook on which to pin negotiation and the state will remain responsible. But at most, you will medium, have medium or long-term benefit from this. Meanwhile, there is now the spillover effect of enforcement in, in, the other, in the other states through attachment of property, but which is severely frowned upon by, by, the, by the governments and, who, and, and simply suspended the, the operation of the tribunal. Then they ultimately outsourced the review of, of what the future, the SADC Secretariat outsourced the review of the future of this tribunal to the World Trade Institute in Bern, who then employed uh, Lo, uh, Professor Laurent Bartels from Cambridge, Australian by origin, to write the report. And it's still officially secret, but we've all read it. And it's by the end, uh, I think next week, uh, and it's, it's very well done, very comprehensive. I think parts of it just way too complicated for SADC simply is not there yet. Um, but I think very much very sound in terms of the way that he applied the also, he followed in a way the reasoning. He came to the same conclusion that, than the SADC tribunal itself on the issues which I've just discussed about the applicability of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, that it's not uh, Article 31, that even though the different treaties, there's only this reference to human rights and no treaties as such are listed, you will have to go and look on a case-by-case -case basis which actual treaties have the state in question ratified and use them as a method of interpretation for the, the SADC treaty itself, which, which I think is, is, is accurate. My problem would be if one would take that one step further and allow the tribunal now also to come to the conclusion that the ICCPR was violated and you know all kinds of other stuff, because I don't think that that was what it is intended to be. I don't, with rule of law, I think also how it was, was applied in this decision relying on Golder, Inter-American Court, Article 7 of the, of the African Charter, I think that was fine. I do, however, think once the court start, uh, starts to go beyond those very basic elements and start trying also to define democracy and whether that's the same as rule of law and all of that, good luck. Um, I don't, and it's, it's not, was it intended that those clauses inferred rights on individuals? Um, the fact that there hasn't been uh, an election, a free election in Malawi or Lesotho for, for I don't know how many decades. And, and if an individual were to take that case to SADC and complain about lack of democracy, you know, what is a court going to do then? Or other aspects, how broad are you going to define rule of law? Um, I wouldn't blame them for trying. I would probably do the same. But I do think conceptually one runs at some point into to a bit of a dilemma. Now, okay, so Laurent Bartels wrote this comprehensive report of about 100 and something pages, and then <clears throat> came to, to the, in, on, on these issues to the same conclusions as the tribunal itself, then made 30, and this one day I hopefully would be able to discuss with this with him, he made 32 recommendations for amendment of the treaty, and that's where my throat just closes. Don't touch the text. It's only going to get worse. There are all kinds of anomalies. There are all kinds of bad drafting. None of those treaties were well thought through or well drafted. That's, that's, that's beyond argument. But once you start tampering with the text in the current political climate, chances are that all references to human rights and democracy and everything else that is worthwhile will simply disappear from the text. I, I don't encourage such a move. 
Um, I've understood that 10 of the 11 governments, one can, uh, one can guess who the 11th one, that the 10 to, it's 10 to 1, but 10, this was two weeks ago, I was told by uh, representatives of the South African Ministry of Foreign Affairs that all the states in SADC, with the exception of Zimbabwe, wants the tribunal to function. And they wanted to continue, and they don't want any 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 further suspension. Zimbabwe was playing this very cleverly. Um, it started with things like, you know, okay, but now the court has been um, deciding, like, okay, due process and discrimination. What if tomorrow it starts tampering with a death penalty? And immediately, Botswana, red lights flashing. Homosexuality, Malawi, very homophobic. Of course, the legal argument then is the, the court has to apply the relevant sources of international law, like if Botswana hasn't ratified optional protocol two, and unless it's a minor that is being threatened with execution, I think it would be very difficult to argue that the customary international law prohibits the death penalty. Maybe certain forms of very cruel punishment, but there would not be that much to go for on a court for a court in the case of Botswana in such an instance. With homosexuality, I would also say, given the, the huge disputes in different regions, it would be difficult to say that the non-discrimination clause would oblige governments to uh, accept marriages between homosexuals and, and people of the same gender, that, that customary international law would oblige same se uh, governments to introduce same-sex marriages and things, things of the sort. Um, but immediately, you know, it's, it's, it's loaded, it's very controversial in Africa where these issues are, are, are where they, they, there's rampant discrimination in these areas. Um, and so immediately by playing that, just using the, the, like the technical international argument doesn't necessarily dispel all fears. But then apparently for once South Africa did uh, play a very constructive role behind the scenes and the Deputy Minister of Justice was arguing that, listen, we have all kinds of re acts, in the, there are all kinds of legis legislative reform at the moment going on in South Africa about reforming, re the reforming the judiciary. Also to some extent very controversial, but we don't suspend the whole court system because of this. As long as the parliamentary debate and all the rest of it's going on, you know, people need to be tried and, and get their compensation and get on with it. So the, court, the courts need to function, and parallel to this, there's a political discourse as to what needs to be fixed, but you don't stop the system entirely. And apparently, um, the common sense of that has been now been endorsed by 10 of the 11 members, but there will probably be a reopening of the debate on, uh, on, the, on the SADC Treaty, and we will have to see to, 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 to what that will lead to. And uh, that decision, I think, is taken on the 28th. When is that? Next, next Friday. And where this leaves us with the rule of law, um, well, I think in a formal sense, I do think that this decision had a historic value and that it was unique for, for many reasons. Um, and that at least in the long term, uh, there is a signal that went out that there is in, uh, independence of the judiciary in Africa is possible and that we can think beyond race on these issues even when it concerns an extremely problematic colonial issue 
regarding unequal distribution of land and the consequences as a result of that. But that to think that you can resolve the issue by simply displacing the forum to, to somewhere else is, illu is illusionary. Ultimately, the, the states who form the building blocks of this community must be willing to embrace the decision and enforce it, even if it is a decision that goes against what they want. And I do think that in, in, if one looks in Europe, most of the member states of the Council in Europe, for example, even if they disagree vehemently with a decision from uh, 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 the European Court of Human Rights, will ultimately give effect to the decision, even while, while, if not agreeing. Not all of the member states, it is problematic, more problematic now perhaps than, than a couple of years ago, but generally speaking, there is an, there's an acceptance of the fact that if you accept the jurisdiction, you also accept that decisions may go the other way and, and that that's simply the way that things are. And I don't really think that we're quite there yet. And the next couple of months and the next year or two will probably uh, indicate just how far states are willing to accept this principle. Because I do think that once, if the decision next Friday is taken and, and, and the, the, the judge is reappointed and the court takes up its work again, that there will be a, a whole wave of cases similar to the ones of Campbell in different contexts and from also various other jurisdictions. Thank you. Thank you.